Yeah, this is where we all end up. The rocking chair. This particular rocking chair has been handed down in my family for generations. My Aunt Frances couldn't remember where it came from, but she said her mother had been rocked in it. And that Aunt Nina, great-great-aunt Nina had been rocked in it. It's probably before the Civil War. I rocked my son in it. Put him to bed every night with a bottle. I think it's the creek that put him down. Sometimes me too. The rocking chair, everyone. That's where we end up. And Solomon, for 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, trying to teach wisdom, says we all end up in the rocking chair. You may try and fight it, and you may try and think otherwise, but you're going to end up in the rocking chair. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is the way Ecclesiastes starts out. The very first verse, and near the very, very end, 12 chapters later, same exact thing. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. All is vanity. It all goes to the curb. Life is vain. It's a selfish selfish chasing after the tail simply because we think our tail is worth chasing. And what for? What's it all about? Solomon says, so someday you can just die and return to the earth, and your flesh return to the earth. Twelve chapters. He runs through everything through an entire life. It actually progresses through a person's life. Bitterness, work, contentment, tiredness, pain, struggle, ingratitude, being grateful for what you have, trying to live, live simply, all of it's in there. And it gets around to the whole idea of what is the meaning of life? What's it get down to? What does it mean to be a wise person? Because someday, we're all going to end up in the rocking chair, whether or not we want to admit it or not. And when we're young, we don't want to think about it. And we don't have to, most of us. But when you get older, you get to chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, you best be thinking about it. Chapter 12, verse 1. This would be one of these cases where you actually had a print Bible. It'd be better unless you're really fast at annotating digitally on your iPad or something. But Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. It's a metaphor for being old. Okay, watch this. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. In other words, it all gets boring and old. It's all been done before and it's, it, it's just repetition. Chapter or Verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. And when the keepers of the house tremble, that's the hands, and the strong men stoop, and that's the shoulders and the arms. And when the grinders cease because they're few, what do you think that is? Teeth, yeah. And those, through, uh, those looking through the windows grow dim, that's the eyes. And when the doors to the street are closed, that's the ears, and the sound of grinding fades, and when men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, 
You're getting up way too early and you can't hear the birds anymore. And when men are afraid of heights, oh, they're afraid they're going to fall. And the dangers in the street. And when the almond tree blooms, uh, blossoms, that's gray hair, by the way, it's white, kind of a dingy white. And the grasshopper drags himself along and desire is no longer as stirred. Um, I'm just going to say Viagra at this point. And the man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken. That's a lamp metaphor. Before the pitcher shattered at the spring, the well's head frame collapses and you kick the bucket and the dust returns to the ground from which it came. Oh, the wheel's broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground from which it came and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the New International Version, the NIV. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless, but in the New Revised Standard, it says, vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon concludes his teaching about wisdom with the same answer he'd given half a dozen other times throughout the book. Don't end up some old person living in regret. Don't limit your life. Enjoy every micro moment and enjoy the big picture. It all counts. Don't be a woulda, shoulda, coulda person. Do everything you can. Live life to its fullest. Live simply. Don't think too big about anything. Don't be a person of what ifs or if I could have only. If I could have only just traveled more. If I only could have just enjoyed the moment more. If I could have just been home with the kids more. If I could have just, if I could have just. Because as we all know, it's been said so many times, nobody ever ever on their deathbed said, I wished I would have spent more time at the office. That's what he's trying to say. So brothers and sisters, you and I can easily waste the life God has given us. So face it. We all end up in the rocking chair thinking, what was my life all about? And so the question we have to ask this morning out of Ecclesiastes as we wrap things up is, what is my life worth right now? Right now, what is the, what's the point of living? Because the, the power comes in here, get busy living or get busy dying, but the point is, is right now you must be alive, not fearful. What gives our lives lasting value and significance? Because Solomon's final words should ring out in our ears. And here it is, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. It's all been done. It's all been heard. And here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of mankind, of humanity. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. So what does that mean? Because judgment day is coming, you should fear God and don't do much, don't risk much, you know, because you might get busted. The whole 12 chapters have said just the opposite. It all gets accounted for, live life to its fullest. That's what you'll get judged for. We find the very same thing, Jesus, 930 years later after Solomon writing this, We find Jesus really saying the same thing, but it's updated. It's up to 30 AD sort of version, and we have better teaching about it, and it's not written like wisdom literature. It's actually more narrative because it's in the Gospels. 
And Jesus is asking us, what is our life worth? And a couple of weeks ago, we said, how many sparrows are you worth? Are you content? Are you grasping after the wind? What are you doing right now in your life that's going to last? And Solomon says there are really only two paths, and Jesus is saying the same thing. There's the path of the wise and the path of the fool. And this is where Jesus then comes crashing in. Jesus says the same thing, saying, to sum up Solomon, he says this. He calls to his disciples, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. And he says, he calls to the disciples, to the crowd, uh, he called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wants to become my follower, then let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Do you hear Ecclesiastes, the faint whisper of it there? Do you hear this wisdom? What good is it for you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Basically the same wisdom as Solomon. Take up your cross then and follow me, Jesus says. Because Jesus has a particular way in which we are supposed to be living this life. The thing that will bring it meaning. You lose your life, then you save it. So everyone, here's the way I kind of interpret this. And at the risk of oversimplifying, because I think I'm going to oversimplify here, I propose then, and it's not just me, but I propose then that the goal in life is freedom. The goal in life is freedom. That's the goal, right? What are we living for? We're living for freedom. Now, you know, you have to get rather philosophical at this point, because this gets, gets rather thick, and I've actually lately been reading a lot of really thick stuff. Uh, I don't know why. I'm kind of torturing myself for some reason. I'm trying to understand Hegel but, um, and other philosophers. But for some reason, human flourishing seems important to my vocation. And so freedom becomes a very important thing. Because from Aristotle to Plato to even Hegel to Charles Taylor, right on down the line, freedom is what it's all about. This country is designed about freedom. As a matter of fact, if you just think about America, it's just the last or the most recent interpretation of organizing politically around the idea of freedom. This America is our understanding of freedom in our day. We have a constitution. We have all sorts of creeds, we have anthems, we have flags, they're all about freedom. As a matter of fact, you know, right, the big debate these days, whether conservative or liberal, is about who's the most free, who understands that freedom the most. You're American, no you're not, I'm American, you're not, you know, and all that sort of thing. Freedom is a precious thing, and philosophically, it's called flourishing. Human flourishing is the goal. And if you get in really current philosophy, it's about the consciousness of freedom. That's a sleeper. What does it mean to be free? We can all agree that this is a goal, yeah? Simple as it may sound. We can even hear Jesus getting quoted way out of context, left and right these days. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Freedom. The American people will fight and die for freedom that cherished goal above all things, the ultimate goal in life is for everyone to be free. But we cannot because if freedom is on one pole, then on the other side is the problem of fear. 
Fear destroys freedom. If you live in fear, you are not free. True? Simple. I understand. I'm simplifying things way too much. We can't get freedom because we're trapped by fears. The fear of death, the rocker, the rocking chair first. Oh, you better not try that, son. You might die. I know this. I have teenagers. Don't go cliff jumping. They're getting ready to go on the canoe trip around here. I said, nobody, and I mean nobody, all you guys who think you're professional swimmers and divers, nobody dives in the river. Why? Because you might die. That's why. My kids are like, stop saying that. Well, it's true, because I'm a dad. By the way, kids, don't anybody ever jump in a lake or a river where you can't see the bottom. Even if you can't see the bottom, don't jump. Just don't even go in the lake. <laughs> Just look at it. Send me a picture from real far away. Fear. This has invaded the church. The church has, has taken this idea of freedom of salvation and overwhelmed it with the problem of fear. And it's become a a reductionist strategy. And what has happened here when fear has invaded our church is that first off, we begin to say, God's going to get you. So you better fear God, like the boogeyman almost, like God's going to judge you and you should be scared spitless because God's watching. Don't do nothing wrong. That's the first problem. I think hopefully we can all see through that, but apparently we keep running into churches like that, so I I guess it's still out there. But here's one even more pervasive. We have taken the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross, and we have reduced it down to something that one author, one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, uh, professor, dean of philosophy at USC when he was alive, And Dallas Willard said, Christians these days have reduced the gospel down to the gospel of sin management. The gospel of sin management. And what does he mean by that? The gospel of sin management means is that all we need the cross for, according to this strategy, we need to get rid of our sin problem. We don't want a relationship with God. We don't really want anything else. All we want to do is get our fire insurance card from hellfire. We want to stay out of hell. So, Jesus, thank you so much for dying on the cross. I don't really need you much past that. As a matter of fact, Dallas Willard went on to say, we are all now vampire Christians. All we want is Jesus' blood. We don't care about a relationship. We don't care about the life he has to offer. We're just worried about staying out of hell fire. This is the gospel I was raised on. The gospel of sin management. Manage your sins. Get that problem taken care of. Okay, we're good. Go on with your life as banal as it might be or as meaningful as it might be. You're free from hellfire. That's all we needed. You see the reductionism going on here? Very simplistic and very shallow and not very meaningful at all. It has nothing really to hardly to do with what Jesus taught if you read the rest of the Gospels. Um, so this is where we end up. So sin is very real problem gets um, turned into this sort of eternal damnation and it just becomes sort of a math formula. If you get the cross, you pray the prayer, you say, I believe in Jesus, then you get rid of your fear of death and now you're free to 
live, I guess. And that's it. Free to stay out of hell. And this mental intellectual agreement that Jesus is the Son of God and has died on the cross for us then does very little to change a person's life. It gives us no meaning for living. It's all based on fear. And then Jesus says, if you want to become free, if you want to become free, if you want freedom, this is what Jesus taught. If any of you want to become my followers, not just stay out of hell, if any of you want to become my followers, then let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Wait a second. I thought, Jesus, you died on the cross so I didn't, could get rid of the cross that I deserved. I thought that's what was going on, right? I need my fire insurance here. And now you're telling me I have a cross. That's right. You didn't lose a cross. It's a different cross. It's a cross you bear your whole life. Take up their cross and follow me. It does not say if anyone would come after me, then they must pray a little prayer, you know, park their rear in the rear pew or whatever or something like that for the rest of your life. Be nice and kind, say please and thank you, and then sit around and wait to die. The rocking chair. That's not what it says at all. It says you have a cross to bear. You have a life to live. There is meaning, and it comes through this. So here's how Jesus describes it. A wash basin and a towel. That is how Jesus understands freedom. This is the way out of fear. A wash basin and a towel. Because if you know this metaphor, if you know this, Im- this image, this symbol, you realize this idea is that the wash basin and the towel is Jesus washing the disciples' feet on what we call the Last Supper, that Thursday night, the night that Jesus is arrested. And around the Last Supper, Jesus takes on the role of a servant, not the dignified rabbi. And he washes the dirty feet of the disciples with a wash basin and a towel. And in that last moment, that last moment where he's finally there to the end of everything, and he wants to leave them one last image, he gives them the basin and the towel. If you don't remember anything, Jesus says, he says, remember this. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what I'm ordering you to do. This is what it means to follow me. Not just fire insurance. We become free when we give it away. This is the topsy-turvy wisdom of Jesus. If you want to live, you die. If you want to save, you lose it. This is the way it works. The person, the Christ follower who wants to be alive and live the fullest life you can live right now washes other people's feet serves. You're not really going to hear this all the time in like the Harvard Business Review or in Fortune magazine. Every now and then there'll be some little cute article about leaders, you know, should do something to help their employees. You know, make coffee. I don't know what it says. But for Jesus, he says, you have a cross. (laughs) You have a cross to bear for your whole life. That's how you end up in that rocking chair saying it was a good life. It was a very good life instead of doing woulda, shoulda, coulda. If only, if only, if only. 
This is the way I think about it these days, since I don't really have many dirty feet to wash. It's my passport. I think this is my fourth one. I, I look older in it. Duh. First time I got a passport was to go to Haiti. And in Haiti, which is still burned into my memory these days, is holding small babies that would be dead in a few days. Seeing dead bodies put to the curb like we would put out trash. And gathering around people who had nothing but worshipped with joy and abandonment. That's why I got this passport. Now Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, it's okay to take this passport and go on a cruise. Don't do it on debt, you know, have the money for it. That would also be wise. It's okay to enjoy a good meal. Eat the cheesecake. Enjoy things. This, the passport means you have to eat the cheesecake like in France. So enjoy life. But it's not just for enjoyment. The passport is what every Christian should own. Every Christian should have a passport, an up-to-date passport, because you never know what you'll be called to do. You never know what you'll be called to. I keep waiting for a call from China that says there's a court date for my friend, Pastor Wood, who's in jail right now for serving, taking food to starving children in Myanmar and then re-entering China illegally. He basically just forgot his passport. He's in jail. And I keep waiting for a call to say, could you come be with Pastor Wood? My friend John. I'm up to date. I'm good to go. And go gather around those that just simply need us to be with them. How about you? What will you, what will you be called to do? You'll be scared spitless. Go to Haiti? Go to Jamaica and build houses? Do you know they're leaving for Liberia next month to go work with young women uh, who have a fistula condition? You could go there and just hold hands, sing songs, play games. Lose your life and you'll find it. Give it away and you'll be full. Take up your cross and you'll live forever. This is what Jesus is teaching us. Around here, you don't have to go to the France to eat cheesecake. You can just simply, you see it going on around here. People choose to not take the trade-in value of their car, and instead they give the car or they sell the car to somebody for 100 bucks, which I think is what Missouri wants these days, to give their car to like a single mom who has three kids, and you know how it works, and maybe you don't. But she has a job. If she misses once, the job is over. She loses income. Living by a thread. Now, us in suburbia, we don't understand that. We call in sick, but not with the kind of jobs people like that get. That car is, is living or not living, income or not income. So we give away cars around here. It's kind of a bunch of paperwork, but, you know, you give it to the church, and then we give it to them, that kind of thing. People show up early just to clean. It's not their profession. They're not professional cleaners. Some people in the church are, but these are usually kind of corporate types. But they're here, you know, early, and they're cleaning the place. Why? 
Well, it's their way of serving. They're, they're dying to their self a little bit so somebody else can have a clean place. It goes on week in and week out. Every Thursday, a bunch of women come in here and clean. They're friends. It's like their thing. They come in here and clean this place. They just do it. Then they go to lunch. On and on and on. Some people serve in the band. They love to do that. Some people lead a small group. And you know what that takes? It means they either have to find a babysitter because they're going to go do the group. They're going to lead the thing. They've got to prepare for it. You know, hopefully more than 30 minutes before the thing starts. They've got to give up a night. They have to make phone calls because people didn't show up. They've got to, maybe they're going to arrange snacks. The whole kind of thing. They're just dying to their self to serve somebody else, to create community. Church is only church because of community, because of the village that we have. Otherwise, we're just, you know, some sort of organization. People help each other out with giving away money secretly sometimes. Sometimes they give to a cause. Around here we have this extra thing going on that we call 2020, and it's people have given above and beyond all their normal gifts. $1.3 million over three years they pledge for that. It's changing all sorts of things. Some of you guys gave me mowers to go down to the inner city. I got one sitting in front of my office that I get to get down there now. That one of you gave us. This is what it looks like. This is the journey to meaning, meaningfulness. This is what it means. This is away from vanity. When you give your life away, when you serve others, when you take up the basin and the towel, you get your passport, you become free, and you stop living in fear. That's the simple formula. Call it basic, call it too simplistic, but I'm telling you, it's the way it works. If you overthink it, you don't do anything. This is the way it works. This is the way it happens. So here comes the big wisdom finale right at the end of Ecclesiastes. What Solomon and Jesus both taught is that freedom comes through death to self. Death to self is the way to meaning. Death to self is the way to not live a vain life. That is the core message of following Christ. Death for others, death to self. It's never been about you and me. It's always been about somebody else. And the more you, uh, and the technical term is called disappropriate, means you give away stuff, which is what you're supposed to be doing when you're old, by the way, is disappropriating. It means you give away all your junk so you don't have anything. <laughs> Because then you're free, 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 free. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last because I don't have all that junk. Does anybody else have the thought that you could just get a small bulldozer and like take a big few scoops out of your basement and chuck it in the trash and you probably would never miss it? Or your garage, it could all just get pushed out into a dumpster and you'd probably be like, what was I looking for? Nah, it doesn't matter. Isn't that the way it really works? Isn't it just a fear that says, I don't know, I better keep that grandma's bucket of yarn. I might take up knitting someday. Like, will you really? Okay. Sorry, offended all the knitters in the room. There's probably a bunch of people now that would love to give you yarn that they're never going to use. Death 
This is what it means to live a wise life, everyone. To be free is to give it all away. That's how we really live. Those are the happiest people. Those are the ones that are flourishing. Those are the ones who sit back and just simply enjoy everything as much as they can. You can't hang on to it. That's only driven by fear. Would the servers come forward? This sacrifice, this model on that night when Jesus washed the disciples' feet with the towel and the basin, that night that he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me because his body was going to be broken upon a cross. Do you see the model? And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. It's body, a broken body and a spilt blood. Not because there's some transactional thing going on where Jesus, we're all vampire Christians. We just need his blood. That's certainly a part of it. The real truth of the matter is it's a sacrifice because he's showing the disciples how they are supposed to live so they can be free. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, says Paul. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. Join me, everyone. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and this drink. Come forward whenever you're ready. Tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the chalice. Consume it and return to your seat in prayer. And by the way, just as a small teaching moment, they will say to you, in case you can't understand them, because the doors to the house or whatever the metaphor was there in Ecclesiastes can't hear anymore. uh, They're saying the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, the peace of the Lord be with you is what the cup holder says. And then you're supposed to say back to them and also with you or this or hey or something. (laughs) But you're supposed to respond back and also with you, just like we did when we passed the peace. So come forward, tear off a piece of the bread consume it. Come forward whenever you're ready. And let us uh, encourage each other and send us each out with a good word, the benediction, which means good word. So we're saying this to each other. It's not a prayer. <clears throat> this is our encouragement. We're sending all of ourselves out to each, each other. So just open up your hands and all together, everybody. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm, May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace, everyone.